Hello and welcome to Physician Spotlight. I am your host, Dr. Vikram Christian. Physician Spotlight is a forum for us to learn more about our physician leaders in the field of nutrition. We are grateful to Aspen and our viewers for making this possible. On today's episode, I have Dr. David Mercer. Dr. Mercer is a professor in the Department of Surgery and Division of Transplantation at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. He's also direct, the director of the Intestinal Rehabilitation Program. Dr. Mercer, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're very welcome. So I wanted to start off by talking a little bit more about uh, your interest in nutrition. How did this come about? Well, you know, I must say, if I went back to my training when I was a surgical resident, it really wasn't a big part of my life. It wasn't a direction that I thought I would necessarily go in. When I came down to the University of Nebraska and I was doing my transplant training, there was a pretty big, um, a pretty big experience with pediatrics and short bowel patients and intestinal failure as it pertains to transplant. And I found, much to my surprise, I really liked doing it. I, I really enjoyed doing it. And so I spent a lot of time in my training learning those skills. And then when I returned back to, I, I'd gone back to Canada for a few years. And I had, when I turned back to Nebraska, I really wanted to steer my career in that direction. And I found increasingly then that nutrition just came to play almost a central role in everything I do. As we get into the interview, we talk about, you know, the, how the program works. I mean, I think people will really see how pivotal it is into every decision that we're making. So. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that program? Uh, tell us a little bit more, I guess, the setup that you have there at Omaha. Sure. So the setup is probably a little bit unique in that we, we are a fairly large, well-developed program. It's been in existence for, you know, probably close to 25 years. And I've been running things for about 16 of them. Um, you know, we, we look after children and adults. So we look after right from the smallest, you know, the smallest infants in the NICU right up to the very end of life. What we have is a team where we have um, we're, we're, what I like to describe as a very dietitian forward program. So we have five dedicated dietitians looking after just the non-transplant management of children and adults with short bowel syndrome. And then we have, um, you know, we have a series of nurse coordinators working very closely with them. And then myself kind of at the helm of the team, a pediatric gastroenterologist and two adult gastroenterologists and then all the ancillary support that comes along with that, like financial counselors and social work and, and everything else that, that comes along. But that's really the core. So the team functions where um, we have a couple of full days of clinic a week. When patients come into clinic, they typically are seeing all of the members of the team simultaneously. So we'll come into the room and it can be, we'll jokingly say it's a bit like a clown car because people just are coming into the room one after another. And the rooms get kind of crowded because we'll have a surgeon, a gastroenterologist, a dietitian, and a nurse, and there might be one of our research coordinators could be in there, plus there's, you know, family members and everyone else. And we're really giving that patient then everyone's undivided attention for as long as that visit takes, whether it's, you know, it's 15 minutes because we're seeing them every week and we have been for a year, or maybe it's an hour because they're coming from out of town and we haven't seen them for a while or they're a new patient or something. And we found that that model allows us to have that kind of um, real-time interaction with each other and with the patient that for us has been very effective. Um, I think it allows us to, to move the patient into sort of the center of the care circle where we have them right with us. And we're saying, okay, what do you think? Will this work for you? Does this fit in with your life? Is this compatible with what your goals are? And, and they have the ability to bounce ideas off of all of the different team members simultaneously. 
And you know, over the years, you just kind of develop a flow to it. So even though it's a lot of numbers, it kind of gives it gives every patient, I think, a very thoughtful and unique experience where they're with all of the members of the team. And it kind of can efficiently work so that we can we can see a fair number of patients over the course of the day in clinic. That sounds like an incredibly unique and special setup. Um, and I just love that, you know, back and forth communication that you spoke about. Um, definitely sounds very effective. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, some of the, you know, maybe surgical options and maybe your approach, your personal approach when you see these patients in clinic? Sure. So, you know, I, I will often describe myself. I say that I'm a transplant surgeon. And I do liver and intestine transplants, but I spend most of my life trying to avoid intestinal transplant. Many, many patients get sent to us um, either uh, you know, as a referral saying this, we think this patient might need an intestine transplant or a patient thinking that's what they need. And I must say of all the patients that come to us, um, uh, really a, a very small minority of patients go on to transplantation. The overwhelming majority of patients we can manage in intestinal rehabilitation. To the extent that the, the, of our own patients, there's there's maybe one per year of say 100 new adults and 40 or 50 new children. There's maybe one child and one adult per year, if that, that we end up sending to transplant. Overwhelming wow. state of rehabilitation. And so my my surgical philosophy. So typically, if I sit down, you know, many times patients will come and they don't necessarily understand what transplant entails. They sometimes think that they're going to come to Nebraska for a week, they're going to get a transplant, and when they go home next week, you know, everything will be just the way it was before the problem. And so, of course, we have to, you know, not crush hopes, but we have to explain the reality of the situation is that, you know, that's not really what happens. Here's more um, the risks and benefits of that approach versus this other approach. And when we have that discussion, then people will sometimes start to realize, gee, there's actually a lot that we can do through the rehabilitation arm of things without having to go so far as transplant. And we can always tell them if we need that, it's there for you, but it isn't necessarily, well, in fact, it certainly isn't our, our, our first plan. So when we're talking about surgical options, um, it, it can range from meeting a patient that has very complex abdominal anatomy. Maybe it's an adult with multiple enterocutaneous fistulas in discontinuity, terrible wound manager in the front, or it's, a, it's an infant. Uh, who's had the infant surgeries, maybe had all of the resections, they have an ostomy with 10 centimeters of small bowel and some more distal colon. And we might be initially just saying, okay, what do we need to do to get you reconstructed? That's almost always our primary goal is to get every bit of intestine on the inside working in any case where we think that that's feasible to do. And that's the majority of them. So we want to get anatomy reestablished, get continuity going, get on feeds, do, do all of that kind of good stuff that we do, and we'll probably touch on more. But some of the more specialized surgical stuff comes in when you're looking at things like um, enteroplasties, when you're taking a, a, maybe a, a child, an infant or a child who's dilated, their small bowels stretched up, it's not functioning as well as it used to. And we're saying, okay, let's think about doing a, a tapering enteroplasty or a, a step procedure, a serial transverse enteroplasty, sort of thing, to try to change the function of the intestine. Um, as we've learned, as we've, we've gained experience working with some of the more challenging esoteric diagnoses, some of the really strange pseudo-obstruction diagnoses and neurologic compromise and different things like that, I think we've gained a lot of insight into different ways we can approach these conditions. Um, one of the things that's been very useful to us, and, and again, I'm sure we'll touch on it in our discussions, is we can manage patients 
with such short lengths of intestine now and successfully get them off of TPN, that it changes the way you think about diseases surgically. Because now you say, well, gee, instead of, if we have a, a full intestine that doesn't work very well, maybe it's got a poor forward motility function, scleroderma or something like that. Rather than keeping all of the intestine, which we used to, we now think, oh, well, maybe we'd be better off to have much less intestine because we know we can manage the short bowel element of things, but we can give you a much better quality of life getting rid of you know, some poorly functioning intestine. And so we've really gone from what I would say philosophically early in my career was about let's, we have to save every inch of intestine and we, we really can't, you know, we can't lose anything too. What we have to have is good functioning intestine. And we don't necessarily have to have all of the intestine that we were given. It may be that in some cases having less is actually more. So that's been a real mind frame shift for me related to all of the other elements of how we care for intestinal failure. It's actually impacted on how we think about who needs surgery. Now, talk a little bit about you know, transplant. Um, what would you consider to be maybe the, the ideal patient or the ideal candidate for intestinal transplant? Well, you know, that's, that's a tough question because it's a constantly moving target because mm -hmm. transplant, as we've gotten better and better at rehabilitation, the numbers of transplants in the country have gone down dramatically. You can, you can just simply look at the OPTN statistics. You know, in, in the heyday of transplant, you know, the mid 2000s, 2005, six, seven, the country was doing maybe 200 intestinal transplants a year. Now it's doing 80 transplants a year and it's doing probably less than 20 children per year in the country. And, and so it's a moving target as to what is the optimal candidate. You know, something that could be controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I believe it, is we're almost in an era where if we have to transplant a child, we, except for very rare circumstances where there are specific genetic disorders, we're almost in an era where having to transplant a child represents a failure of the medical system in some capacity. And, and that's not always the case. And there's always exceptions. But I, I guess my point is, if we're doing optimal care from infancy, optimizing the way we're treating kids with parental nutrition, optimizing Lyme care, doing all of these other things, we shouldn't get life-threatening Lyme infections, not repeatedly. We shouldn't be losing all of our vascular access and we shouldn't be getting liver disease. And so then our main indications for transplant should sort of fade into the background. And, and so I do think when you're seeing a two-year-old who's got hard indications, and by this I mean extensive loss of vascular access, there are always very difficult, challenging cases. I accept that. But in many cases, when one reflects back, you think, gee, here's some things that might have been done differently that could have changed the trajectory for that child. So I think when we're looking at a child who's got hard indications for transplant, we really have to take that as a community in a place like Aspen or Serta, some of the groups where we have people doing this care and say, what did we miss? How did we get to this point in just two years or three years that we now have hard indications for transplant? So the ideal patient now is really a patient where we have done everything that we can do in rehabilitation. And we, and we feel like we've done that in a good way, in, in a well-defined program with a lot of experience doing it. And not only are we failing to make progress, but we're actually developing risk factors where at one point we sit down and we go, man, if we don't do a transplant, that, you know, that's going to be a bad path. Like, like our, our path over the next six months or our next 12 months is leading us to a very 
challenging outcome, maybe to death or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's when we need to be bringing in transplant, I would say. And we need to say that the risk of not doing this procedure is greater than the risk of doing it. And I mean, we, we say that in simplistic terms about anything that we do in medicine, but in transplant is particularly apropos because when you step on that first step down the path of transplant, you really don't step off. You march down that path and you take on with you the statistics that go along with that path. And it doesn't matter how wonderful you are as a family, how loving as a parent, how much you care as a physician or how wonderful the child is, the statistics are what they are. So are we getting better? Yes, there's some incremental improvement. But if you look globally at it, it's really not a dramatic improvement in outcome. And so I think it behooves us when we're thinking about what's the ideal time or the ideal candidate to really be careful about that decision and to not embark on that path where there might be other things that we can do that are equally or more efficacious. Yeah, thank you. That was super helpful. Um, you know, we spoke a little bit about changes that we've seen over the years, including how far TPN and you know lipids have come as well as line management. Where do you feel like the future is leading us? So what do you feel like are things that we can look forward to in the future? I love that question. The, um, there, there's never been a brighter time to be a child or an adult with short bowel syndrome. And I say that in clinic all the time. You know, when I reflect back on my own career, so if I think back to, you know, 22 years ago and I'm a fellow, and when I'm a fellow, you know, we have um, little kids coming in from all over the country at three months or four months of age and stage liver disease, emaciated little muscle-wasted bodies, great big tummies, yellow as can be, we evaluate them as fast as we can, list them for transplant, race to try to find organs for these little wee bodies, which we get about half of the time. And so, you know, half the time kids don't make it to transplant. We transplant them when they're desperately ill and they just hold on for the ride and try to get through transplant. And we did surprisingly good in that era, but it was a, it was a rodeo ride all the time. Now, when you look at it and you think, gosh, between the advances in lipid technology, the widespread dissemination of information in NICUs about lipid minimization, about alternate ways to deliver TPN so that we can prevent that kind of liver disease. We almost never see liver disease. Liver disease was everything in those days. You never worried about loss of access and you never worried about frequent line infections because no one lived that long. So when we got so good at managing liver disease through all of the, you know, the Boston work with Omega Van and everyone moving to SMOF, now you started to see other things coming into play that became increasingly important, like line infections, um, loss of access. Well, then we start to say, gee, let's manage lines differently. Then we haven't even touched on growth factors. Yeah. So if you think about, you know, if you think about all of the GLP-2 analogs, you know, the drugs that we have now and the drugs that will be coming in the next couple of years, we have increasingly efficacious drugs. So we're going to see GLP-2 analogs, and then we're going to see dual, dual agonist GLP-1 and GLP-2 analogs that are going to not only improve our absorption, but they're going to slow down our transit time. And now we're talking about getting kids off of TPN when they have six centimeters of small bowel. Adults with 20 centimeters, I will tell you most adults with 20 to 30 centimeters of small intestine and 75% of their colon are going to come off of TPN. Most children with 10 centimeters are probably going to come off of TPN. Even the shorter kids are, are more likely than not going to come off. It might take longer. But the days that you needed 50 or 60 centimeters to come off of TPN are past. 
Now, now our threshold is so much lower than that. Where does the future lie? I think it lies in the same sort of directions, you know, in, in continuing to improve the day-to-day -day care so that we don't lose children when they're young and they grow older. But, you know, um, some of the things coming like different locks, like getting EDTA locks. There was a paper published um, this past year and I wrote an editorial about EDTA locks in, in the experience in Toronto where they had no Lyme infections in a thousand you know, catheter days, zero infections, mm. which then raises the question of, can TPN be destination therapy? Can you take a child and say, we have an expectation that we can keep your child on TPN for the rest of their natural life if they need to? Something that's unheard of, certainly 20 years ago, but even 10 years ago. <clears throat> Where that can become relevant to us, whether we're looking after children or adults, is one thing we know about short bowel syndrome is when you're growing, you have to get a lot of calories. But when you're done growing, you don't need so many calories. So often when I'm talking with families now, and I, maybe I'm talking with someone who's got a 10-year-old, and I'm saying, okay, we have to give your child 25 calories per kilogram per day of TPN right now. But we know they probably need 55 cows, so that means they're absorbing 30 cows per kilo per day. Once they're done growing and they're 18 or 19 years old, that's all they're going to need for calories per day. So in a way, and we're seeing this, this is being borne out in the children who are now getting through their teens and getting to adulthood, is their, their short bowel syndrome gets easier to manage. Mm -hmm. So you have kids that were challenging when they were infants and they needed 85 cows or 90 cows per kilo, who weren't so bad when they were in grade school or even in puberty. But when they finish growing, suddenly their calorie needs drop and we get them off of TPN. We have kids who are on Gatex who come off of Gatex once they're adults. So we're in, we're in an era where we've been able to make people be healthy for so much longer. It's changing the way we think about surgery. The diseases that we thought were formerly fatal are not fatal. And we've allowed children and adults to stay healthier longer, which gives us so many more options to help them. So I couldn't be more excited about the future of the field. It's a great time to, to be doing this. And it's why I'm happy to come to work every day. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you know, I we've definitely definitely come a long way, and we're dealing with um, maybe issues that we would not have anticipated years ago. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Now uh, we were talking a little about um, Aspen before we started our recording today, and um, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got involved with Aspen and maybe the role that Aspen has played in your life and career? Sure. Well, I think for me it became pretty obvious once this was going to be my career path. This was really the forum where all of the thought leaders were in the field. I mean, that, that was what I would see. When I was picking a conference to go to, I would say there's maybe you know, two conferences a year that I want to go to and one that I just never miss. And honestly, the conference I never miss is Aspen. And I'm not just saying that because that's what we're talking about for. <laughs> I actually feel like it's the forum where I can sit down with the people who I consider are the thought leaders in the field and, and actually find out what are people thinking? What are they doing? What direction is the field going? I think Aspen has been very forward thinking and trying to um, establish itself in a leadership position. I think it's done very well in an advocacy position, both for advocacy for patients, but also for advocacy for professionals to say, these are, these are the kinds of things we should be sponsoring. These are, these are the ways we should be approaching this. It isn't a dietitian program or anything like that. It's, it's so far beyond that. It, it's bringing in all these different members and saying, we can do this in a multidisciplinary way altogether. 
So I think it's really at the forefront. It's really the, the sort of the premier organization doing that right now. So for me, I, I just think it's a great place. It's a great place to be. It's a great meeting to go to. It's a good organization to be part of. We spoke a little bit about advocacy of patients, and I know that you're also involved with the OLE Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization and your role within them? Sure. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. So OLE is a, is a, a, a really a patient-driven organization, a patient advocacy organization for patients on TPN, which has branched out over the years to include other things like tube feeds and intestinal diseases in general. And, and I think it's really one of the oldest and most well-recognized patient advocacy organizations in the, in the country. Now, I've known about OLE and I've been involved with OLE as a speaker and helping out in, for a long time, but only in this last year I've come onto the board, which has really given me a chance to, to see this group of dedicated people and maybe have a little bit of say into how can we start to shape things to help people even more. We have a program here in Nebraska where I've been, I've been working on um, a series of research papers on quality of life that are designed and developed within the community of parents looking after short bowel um, children. So they're, they're, it's research that's being designed by parents, not by clinicians, where we're handing questionnaires to people and saying, here, fill this out and tell us what you think. We're going to the community of patients saying, what do you want to study? How do you want to study it? Help us build a tool. And then let's conduct the experiments in the community, not in universities anymore. It's tremendously powerful because we're gaining insights into quality of life that we just never thought about as clinicians, academicians, because parents view things very differently from what we do. So I think the more we can bring patient advocacy into not just saying, hey, what do we do when there's a vitamin shortage or, you know, where are we going to find neocate, you know, because that's an important role for OLE and HASP and everything else. But it's to take our field in the next step, which is not just to bring people to our meetings to have them sit and watch us stand up at podiums and pontificate in our specialties, but to actually bring them in and integrate them into the way the specialty works to say, what are you people seeing? How would you change things? What have you learned? We learn all the time about things from the from the parents and from the patients about how to change the way we treat the whole reason that we have blenderized feeds blenderized feeds and pediatrics didn't come to us in the short bowel world because we all figured it out it came to us because parents figured it out I so the, yeah the more we can get mm -hmm. patient advocacy involved and get them central to our missions not just saying the patient is the center of the circle which we all say but actually making that real getting them part of the organization having them in leadership roles having them driving forward academic, um, um, our academic programs, that's how we're going to really get people going and get the field driving forward. Wow. Well, it's been an honor to interview you, Dr. Mercer, and it's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for spending the time. Before we wrap up, any you know final words or words of advice for young faculty or trainees? Well, it's been my pleasure to do the interview. It's really fun. And you can tell, obviously, I get pretty passionate and excited. About it. <laughs> I think this is a great time to be in this field. I really do. And I think that this field, it used to be that everybody had a role. There was a pediatric surgeon and pediatric surgeons only did this and gastroenterologists only did this and dietitians only did that. It's not that way anymore. It's, it's, all, it's, it's not even multidisciplinary, the buzzword of multidisciplinary, right? It's transdisciplinary. It's that everyone can do everybody else's job. People can think differently. So a dietitian can do things like a nurse coordinator. And, and I spend three quarters of my life being, a, you know, a, a poor man's gastroenterologist. 
But at the same time, I can be with my gastroenterology con colleagues who come into the OR with me and they do whole bowel enteroscopy in the OR. We make operative decisions together. They pull out central lines in clinic. They do, you know, they're taking out broviacs. They're doing procedures for me because we recognize we don't have to stay pigeonholed in our roles. We can do all these different things. And so I think if anyone is watching and you're a young, you're a young physician, you're a, you know, a young nurse, a young dietitian, if this is something that intrigues you, call us, call any of the big centers and say, how can I do this? How do I get involved? Can I come hang out with you guys for three months? It's a, it's a fun specialty to be in. Wow. Thank you so much. I love that word transdisciplinary. Uh, thank you again for your time. It's been great chatting with you and thank you finally to Aspen for making this possible. Thank you. Victor.